0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to talk to you about type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes. So there are many different kinds of diabetes, So Maureen's going to talk about type 1 diabetes. There are other specific kinds of diabetes related to hormones like growth hormone, cortisol. You can get diabetes when you have liver disease. There are muscle disorders associated with diabetes. Pancreatitis can cause diabetes. And iron overload syndromes, such as thalassemia major, can damage the insulin-secreting cells, the beta cells. And cause diabetes, and there's diabetes that appears during pregnancy, which is a different category for gestational diabetes. And so you can see there are lots of kinds of diabetes. What I'm going to talk about is type 2 diabetes. And I'm going to give you a big overview of the subject and not give you tiny details. So, why do people get type 2 diabetes? They get type 2 diabetes because they have two problems. They do not have enough insulin secretion from their islets, the beta cells in the pancreas. So they have less insulin than they really need. That's a problem in all people with diabetes. And a lot of people with type 2 diabetes have some degree of insulin resistance. What that means is they need more insulin to control their glucose levels than somebody who's more insulin sensitive. And I'll I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. And the genes uh, regulate the insulin secretion and the insulin resistance, and there are environmental factors. So it's an interaction between the genes and the environment that affects your insulin secretion and your insulin resistance. And if you don't have enough insulin secretion, your glucose levels will go high and you develop diabetes. So, uh, I mentioned that genes are important, and this is just pointing out that the, you can, you, families, if type 2 diabetes often runs in families. So, if you think about the background population of the United States, then your risk of developing type 2 diabetes is about 10%. But if you have a, a sibling or a parent with type 2 diabetes, your risk goes up to 30 to 40 percent. If you have both parents with type 2 diabetes, so you've got genetic uh, um, implications from both parents, then your risk of developing diabetes is 50 to 80 percent, and if you are identical twins, the risk is anywhere from 50 to 90 percent. So this just um, illustrates the role of genetics. Now, people have done what I call genome-wide studies. So what they've done is looked at lots and lots of people with diabetes and looked for genetic markers, markers in the genome, which are associated with diabetes. So they're looking at genome-wide s- s- uh, studies and genes that, are, um, that might be associated with development of diabetes. And I've just got a list of a few of these genes. The, the genes that are uh, colored In blue, most of those genes are the ones that are involved with beta cell function and insulin secretion. So those are, as you can see, even in people with type 2 diabetes, the majority of the genes are actually involved with beta cell regulation and beta cell function. PPAR gamma, that's in red. That's one of the genes that's involved with insulin resistance. And FTO and MC4R, these two genes which are in black. These are genes which are associated with appetite regulation. So so you can see a lot of genes that are involved with beta cell function and insulin secretion, a gene for insulin resistance, and these couple of genes which are associated with appetite. And one of the most important genes is, is this gene called TCF7L2. It's a gene that is uh, a transcription factor and associate with beta cell development and regulation, so the insulin secretory cell in the pancreas. And it's quite interesting. There's a study called the Diabetes Prevention Program, and I'll, 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 I'll talk a bit more about this study in a moment. But what they did was they took people who were at risk of developing diabetes and then uh, put them on exercise and lifestyle changes versus metformin or placebo, and then looked at see who developed diabetes, if they could uh, do these interventions. But uh, as part of the study, they also looked at this particular gene, TCF7L2. And they had several flavors of this gene. There's a flavor which is TT, if you like, allele, TT, or CC. And if you had the TT allele, your risk of developing diabetes was much greater than if you were the CC allele. And that didn't matter whether you were in the exercise arm or the metformin arm or the placebo arm, just reflecting the the impact of this particular gene and this flavor you got of this gene in the risk of developing diabetes. So I think what I've sort of shown you is the role of genetics. And now I want to just talk to you a little bit about insulin resistance and the environment. And this slide illustrates... the relationship between obesity and diabetes. So if you look at, this is looking at the prevalence of obesity in the United States. And the slide's a little small, but you can see you're looking at rates of obesity in the United States from 10%, 15% in about 1960, and now up to about 35% in in 2010. And what you're seeing is an increase in rates of obesity in the United States. And I think that's something you're all familiar with, that there's, there are a lot more people who are obese in the United States. And these are BMIs of 30, and these are people who are even more obese with BMIs of 40. So they're even heavier, and you can see their rates have been going up as well. And what's interesting is the rates of diabetes have also been going up in parallel with the increase in obesity, So you're seeing two conditions that seem to be go, going up, um, both um, um, at the same time in the prevalence in the United States. And so how does obesity cause diabetes? Well, I think this slide illustrates, I think, an important point. So what they did was they took people who are obese, and these are not diabetic people patients. These are just obese people who have normal glucose levels. And remember, the vast majority of people with obesity never develop diabetes. So you can see the glucose levels are actually identical. The black line is the thin people and the open circles here are the obese people, the glucose levels are the same. And then if you look at, and this is throughout the day, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and they're eating, and that's why the glucose is go up and down. So this is throughout the day. And now if you look at the insulin curves, what you notice is that the obese people have higher insulin levels than the non-obese controls. So what you're seeing is to keep the glucose levels normal, the left panel, the obese people have more insulin coming out of their islets. You need more insulin to keep the glucose under control. So this is the point. They're more insulin resistant. So if you imagine... Again, going back to that original slide of mine of impaired insulin secretion and insulin resistance. Obesity is one of the main environmental factors responsible for, for insulin resistance. So if you are insulin resistant but you can make enough insulin, well, you won't have diabetes. The problem is if you get more obese and you can only make this much insulin and you don't match, that's when you develop diabetes. So obesity is a risk factor for diabetes, and most likely because it causes you to become more insulin resistant. And if you have a limited insulin-producing capacity and you can't match the increased need for insulin as you become obese, then you'll become diabetic. Now, so it's obvious then that if you could make people thin the diabetes, a lot of diabetes would disappear or people wouldn't develop diabetes in the first place. And there is one study which I wanted to show you. It's called the Swedish, Swedish Obesity Study. And what they did was they took people and, who are obese and gave them bariatric surgery. So you can see, if you look at the left panel, these are the control patients and these are people who underwent bariatric surgery. So they lost quite a bit of weight and these are people here on this side of the panel. They didn't have diabetes to start with. But what happened was you can see that people who had controls, they had higher rates of diabetes than people who underwent bariatric surgery. So at two years, uh, at two years, um, you know, there were about 7% of the control people developed diabetes, whereas about... One or two percent of the bariatric surgery people developed diabetes. So, less people who got weight loss developed diabetes. And if you go out 10 years, you can see the difference is still there. It doesn't mean people don't develop diabetes if you're thin you will develop diabetes because it depends on what is the genetic cause for your beta cells declining with time. And as we get older, we all lose some beta cell function with time. That's why when we're older, more people have diabetes. So, uh, but bariatric surgery reduced the incidence of type 2 diabetes by 78% in this obese population, just showing the value of not getting obese or losing the weight. Uh, This is, I think, an interesting study of Pima Indians. And there is a group of Pima Indians that live in Sonora, Mexico, just across the border. And there's a group of Pima Indians that live in Arizona. Now, the people who live in Mexico tended to still be farmers and working the land and were physically very active. They would be working on average 22 to 33 hours a week whereas the U.S. Pima Indians were driving trucks and things like that, and so they were not as physically active and were getting 2 to 12 hours of physical activity per week. Now, these two group of Pima Indians are genetically related. Uh, you can do the genes and say, oh, you are actually related. You're not different people. And But if you look at the BMI, the... the, the Pima, Mexican Pima BMI was 24 to 26. So they were either normal weight or slightly overweight, whereas the U.S. Pima were obese based on the criteria, 33 to 35. And you can see the rates of diabetes. So if you compare the Mexican Pima versus the U.S. Pima, there's a lot higher rate of diabetes in the, in the Pima Indians in Arizona. Again, I think reflecting what seems fairly straightforward. I, one more slide and I finish this section. And I like this study because it's looking at identical twins. So genetically, they're identical, which is great, or relatively identical. And what's interesting is these were a group of twins which were discordant for obesity. So one twin was obese and the other twin was thin. So they just looked at this group of twins. Most twins generally tend to track together in terms of their weight, but there are a few who don't. So I thought this was very interesting. And as you can see, they both had equal weight until they reached about age 16 and 17. And I say, I know. Why? Well, that's because they were living with their mom and dad. (laughs) But then they went away from the home and went to different environment, and so then this twin became obese, and this twin didn't. And so it's interesting. You ask these twins questions, and you say, "Well, the obese twin was half as active, and the obese twin underreported their energy intake and overreported their physical activity." I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> And so physical activity will reduce the influence of genes on BMI and waist circumference. This is an example of that, that study uh, conclusions. The study is an example of this statement. So let me summarize this first section. Type 2 diabetes affects 24 million people in the United States. And the people with type 2 diabetes have two problems. They have a deficiency and insulin secretion, and many also require higher amounts of insulin to control their glucose, that is, they have insulin resistance. The deficiency in insulin genes is mostly due to the genes. The need for higher amounts of insulin, that's resistance, is genetic and environmental. Obesity is the main environmental factor for resistance. Reducing obesity uh, rates will reduce the rates of diabetes. So let me go on to the next section and talk about pre-diabetes. So pre-diabetes, what is it? It's the high-risk state for developing diabetes. So, and it's defined by test values that are higher than normal but lower than the diabetes diagnosis. So let me take you through this slide. So, there are several ways of diagnosing diabetes. You can measure a fasting plasma glucose in the morning. You can do an oral glucose tolerance test where you consume 75 grams of glucose and then check your glucose two hours later. Or you can measure your HbA1c. And I'll come back to HbA1c in a moment. Uh, but just, just look at the yellow row, that's normal. So if your fasting glucose is less than 100 or you have an OGTT, you don't have to do an OGTT, but if you do, if it's less than 140 or if your A1C is less than 5.7, you're normal. Now, if you are being tested for diabetes, if your number is 126 fasting or higher, then you'll have diabetes. Or if your 2 hour glucose value is greater than 200, or if your A1c is greater 6.5 or greater. So that's how you diagnose. So in between is the gray zone. That's your pre-diabetes. So anyone in the gray zone, so if you have a fasting glucose, between 100 and 125, you will have impaired fasting glucose, IFG. If you're 140 to 199 on an OGTT, you have impaired glucose tolerance, And if your A1C is 5.7 to 6.5, you're at high risk for diabetes. So anybody in this gray zone, whichever of these tests is used, is referred to having pre-diabetes. You want to be careful. These are artificial cut points made by a bunch of doctors. And uh, you you should be a little cynical about doctors, (laughs) I should tell you. Uh, I always tell my patients doctors are bad for your health, and I hope that is true yes ma 'am. The, the question was, were the cutoffs different twenty years ago, and can I tell them can you, can I tell you why the who cutoffs are different uh, the who cutoff for normal fasting glucose is one hundred and ten, and lower cutoff for six was six percent for a1c the, the way these cutoffs are set up is they take a 200 people, normal people, and they look in their eyes and say, Let's measure your glucose levels and let's look at your eyes. They know, and they say, Well, your eyes look fine, but I know what your glucose is. I'm going to have you come back in 10 years. I'm going to look at your eyes. Oh, I can see changes in your eyes that are related to diabetes. So I'm not going to go back. And so those are the numbers. So if you have these cutoffs, you're more likely to develop complications from diabetes. That's how they were set up. And there were other, there were technical reasons. It's a really, I give a whole lecture on diagnosis of diabetes. So there are lots of complicated reasons, but that's the reason why these cutoffs have changed over time um, as the data become better. So, a digression, I need to give you a digression, uh, a second one. And uh, what is HbA1c? HbA1c measures the percentage of hemoglobin, the red stuff in your blood. That, is, that has an attached glucose level. Everyone has an HbA1c number. So if you don't have diabetes and have normal glucose levels, then about 4.3 or 5 point, to 5.6% of you, your hemoglobin has an attached glucose molecule. So this is a normal HbA1c. See, I've colored them green. So there are three of them in the normal uh, in people who don't have diabetes. But if you have diabetes, then your glucose levels run a little high. And so the percentage of hemoglobin that has an attached glucose is higher. So there are five, six reds with greens around them. So that's a higher A1c. So it gives you an idea, a sense of what your overall glucose control was like in the previous three months. So let me give you some facts about prediabetes. If you use the American Diabetes Association-defined test cutoffs, you know, answering your question about changes, but these are the current guides, then about a third of the U.S. population has prediabetes, and about half of the adults 65 or older have prediabetes. So as I mentioned, you're in that gray zone. You don't have diabetes, but you're not normal, so you're in that gray set. Now, you can switch to both sides. You can go from gray zone to normal and from the gray zone to the diabetic zone. So about 2% of people with prediabetes progress to diabetes every year. So they go from the gray zone to the diabetes zone, about 2% per year. It will vary a little bit because it depends on the genetic risks in that particular population. So certain populations that, that... transition might be higher. In other populations, it might be lower. And people can become normal, as I mentioned. So you can go from gray zone to normality, and pre-diabetes can convert back to normal. In one study in the UK, 86% became normal in 10 years. So it's not always true that everybody will progress. I think you have to keep an optimistic mind on these things. So let me tell you about the Diabetes Prevention Programme study, so the DPP. Well, this was an NIH-funded study, and they had 3,000-plus people who were in that gray zone, and they were seriously in the gray zone because they had impaired fasting glucose, they had impaired oral glucose tolerance, and they had overweight. So these are high-risk population Uh, likely to develop diabetes in the future. And so what they did was they randomized these individuals to weight exercise and losing weight or put on a medicine called metformin or placebo, which means nothing, left them alone. And essentially lifestyle did best, metformin did the middle, and placebo did the worst. That's what the study showed over a four-year period of time. So let me give you the conclusions of the DPP. After an average of 2.8 years, lifestyle reduced incidence of diabetes by 58%. On average, remember the people on lifestyle still progressed, so it's not like they went flat. So on average, lifestyle intervention delayed the onset of diabetes by three to four years. And even after you stopped being in the clinical trial, having been in the lifestyle arm was good because uh, 55% developed diabetes at 15 years as opposed to about 60% in the placebo or the metformin group. So before you r- embrace this pre-diabetes diagnosis, I, I think you should look at the data a little more critically. You are labeling one third of the adult US population as having an illness. Is that a good thing? And the DPP study, as I mentioned, used a high risk population. They had the people with impaired glucose tolerance plus IFT, impaired fasting glucose and overweight. So if you take all the people in the gray zone, these people were more likely to, than the the most pre-diabetes population in the United States. So the benefit of the DPP in the real world might be less. And it's still, we still don't know that just telling people they have pre-diabetes leads to what really matters, complications and death, and we don't really know that. So I think you should be a little bit critical when people say, wow, you have pre-diabetes. So let me summarise. Pre-diabetes is defined by test values that are higher than normal but lower than the diabetes diagnosis. What tests and cutoffs you use can greatly affect who gets the diagnosis. If you have pre-diabetes, weight loss and exercise can delay the onset of diabetes. It is unclear that having the pre-diabetes label leads to better health. Treatment, third section. Why are we interested in looking after people with diabetes? Well, because people with diabetes get eye damage, nerve damage, kidney damage. High glucose levels with diabetes causes eye damage, kidney damage, nerve damage. It also affects blood vessels, so you can end up with strokes, heart attacks, and uh, circulation problems to the legs. That's why we try and control people's glucose levels. And there was a study, and so I think it cost about $30 million, uh, uh, called the UKPDS, which showed that Controlling diabetes prevents these complications. So they took people, this was a study done in England, and what they did was they took about 2,000, I think it was just over 2,000 people with diabetes. Half of them they did usual care, and half of them they did tight control. And essentially what they showed was if your A1C, remember what I was talking about A1C before, if your A1C is lower, you are less likely to get the microvascular complications. That's I nerve kidney or 14% reduction in heart attacks so a 30 a 1% reduction in your a1c so going from 11 to 10 causes a 37% decrease in microvascular compla- uh, complications and 14% decrease in fatal and non-fatal mi so this is the rational reason for why we talk about controlling glucose levels so let's talk about treatment and I would like to start with exercise. And there are some studies looking at exercise. And all I want you to take away from this slide is that this opens diamonds on, on this side of the, the line and essentially proving that exercise improves glucose control and your A1c. So your A1c is lower by, by about 0.5%, 0.6% if you exercise. Even if you don't lose weight, you will see some benefit. And that's an important point. And then this is a study of bariatric surgery again. Uh, I like this study because it's randomized, so you didn't choose. It was They took people who are obese with type 2 diabetes and half of them they gave them bariatric surgery, gastric banding, and half of them did lifestyle. And what's interesting is if you look at This is the bariatric surgery group. They lost a lot more weight, of course, compared to the lifestyle group. And a lot of people became open circles. In other words they went into remission for their diabetes. So they were 73% went into remission. Lifestyle did work for some people, and there were a few people that went into remission for their diabetes, but it was 13%. So, again, weight loss is really important in the obese person with type 2 diabetes. And Sherry Schaefer is going to talk about nutrition. So I won't tell you too much, I only have one slide, but thinking about nutrition, it, the total amount of carbohydrates matters more than the source of the type of carbohydrates. Replacing, and these are all based on true scientific experiments. Reducing carbohydrates with monounsaturated fats, Reduces postprandial glucose spikes and triglycerides. You really have to eat a... Brown bread is fine, but you really have to eat very large amounts of fiber to get metabolic benefits. Limiting saturated fats to 10%, dietary cholesterol less than 300. But let me go on to medicines. So there are... 10 different classes of drugs that we can use for people with diabetes. Secretagogues. Secretagogues are drugs that stimulate insulin release from your pancreas on the beta cells. So, glipizide, gliburide, these are drugs that you'll hear names of. Metformin reduces ins- glucose release from your liver, it reduces hepatic uh, glycol- uh, well, gluconeogenesis, I suppose, gluconeogenesis. Alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, these work on the starch, the enzymes in the gut that break down starches, and so they slow down the absorption of glucose. Thiazolidin diones, these are drugs that make, that are insulin sensitizers. They actually work on the PPAR gamma, which was one of the genes I mentioned earlier. GLP-1 receptor agonists, these are drugs that um, uh, work like the you know, gut hormones. We have gut hormones that stimulate insulin release after you eat and suppress your appetite. So the GLP-1 receptor agonists are artificial gut hormones, if you like, to, and at pharmacological doses, lower glucose levels and reduce appetite. DPP-4 inhibitors prolong the action of your own gut hormones. SGLT-2 inhibitors are drugs that make you pee out the excess glucose and lower your glucose levels. I will not talk about these drugs because they're not important. And then, of course, we have insulin. This is one of the guidelines, the American Diabetes Association, and they're recommending using these drugs to treat people with diabetes. Metformin, the GLP-1 receptor agonists, these are, if you like, gut hormone mimickers, the ones that prolong gut hormone action sulfonylureas that stimulate insulin, pioglitazone, which sensitizes you, SGLT2, which makes you pee more glucose and insulin. And you start with metformin, so that's like the foundation treatment, and then if your sugars are not well controlled, then you add a second agent. And if that's not enough, you add a third agent, and then you may add insulin. And as you think about how you use these medicines, you have to think about which one's most likely to work for a particular patient. What's the risk that you'll cause low sugar reactions? What's the risk it will cause you to gain weight? Because some of these medicines will will cause you to gain weight, whereas some patients you might want to help them lose weight. And side effects, and of course cost, because some of these medicines are terribly expensive. And I have one more slide. Uh, when you look at a person, you can't always tell if they have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And I just want you to keep that in mind. To, uh, just because you're thin doesn't mean you have, don't have type 2 diabetes. And just because you're a bit overweight doesn't mean you don't have type 1 diabetes or some of the genetic syndromes. I'll just point out, this was a lady who came to our clinic And she was 80 years old, and she was diagnosed with diabetes at age 76. And what happened was, even now she took her medicines, the metformin and the gliburide, her sugars got worse. And it wasn't like because she was going and eating dessert. She was being very careful. And so we measured these antibodies, and in fact she had type 1 diabetes and not type 2 diabetes. She was 76, but she got type 1. So as you sit in your doctor's waiting room... (laughs) You will, you, will, you will have your list of questions, I hope. And I hope by the end of this, this whole process that you're going through, you'll have lots of questions for your doctors. Thank you very much. The question is, how do bariatric surgery resolve the, help people lose weight or resolve their diabetes? Well, yes, they are eating, and because they're eating different. I think part of the things, it depends on the kind of bariatric surgery you So what tends to happen, some of them are called restrictive, like the banding, and that just makes people feel full when they eat less. So that's one way people lose weight. The, some of them, the, the Roux-en-Y surgery, that is a little malabsorptive. So it, again, they, they reduce the size of the stomach, but they also... Don't let all the food get absorbed, if you like, well enough. So there's a malabsorption. And there is training. I mean, there are foods that you can't really eat easily once you get your bariatric So There are lots of reasons for it. It's, again, a very complicated question because they're different surgeries and have different mechanisms. But those are the main things. Okay. What is diabetes? Is the same thing as renal failure? Okay. Diabetes is when your sugar values are higher than they should be. That's it. And why you get diabetes is because you don't have enough insulin to control your sugar levels. If you're insulin resistant, you, if you're thin, you may need less insulin to keep your sugars under control. If you're obese, you need more insulin to control your sugars. And so there's this mismatch you get between how much insulin your body needs and how much insulin you make. If you're obese, your insulin requirements go up. But if you can't make it up, you'll have diabetes. <sighs> That's such a clever question. The question is, why do obese people require more insulin? Uh, it, it's another extremely complicated question. <laughs> but I will tell you, I, I'll give you an, a, a, a simple answer. There are times when your insulin isn't high and you are insulin resistant. So you, if you starve for a week... If I starve you for a week, you'll become quite insulin resistant. So if I actually do a test for insulin resistant, you're very insulin. But your insulin levels are actually low. And, and the problem there is the, your body is conserving the glucose. It doesn't want to use the uh, glucose. So that's why you're insulin resistant. Does that make sense? Okay. Why obese people have higher insulin levels, we don't really know. There are lots of theories. Some of it is related to the fat cell, which is what you mentioned. Oh, so can I talk a little bit more about diet and uh, recommendations? I will not, because you're getting a whole lecture on it. Uh, But I will say this. Certainly, caloric restriction if you're obese matters. So you have to lose weight. I don't mind how you lose weight. If you lose weight, it'll be a good thing. If you are have your type two diabetes, where your major problem is obesity, yeah. So the question is, can I have my cake and still uh, get better control? Uh, Are you busted? The answer is yes. Yes, because I showed you the slide. Exercise will help your glucose control, even if you don't lose weight. So yes, I think if you if it depends a little bit about what how much how insulin deficient you are, and how much of it is related to obesity issues. Those are two things I mentioned: the insulin resistance and the insulin secretion. And it really depends on a particular patient. For some patients, they may see not much benefit from exercising lowering glucose. Other people where the problem is more the obesity, you will see a benefit of exercise on glucose control. But you're right, overall if you know, you could exercise and you will have slight benefit on numbers even if you don't lose weight. And yes, if you ate your cake, you should go for a walk. <laughs> yes. Okay, will weight loss help a person who's diagnosed with prediabetes if they're not obese? depends. It depends on how much insulin deficit they have, insulin secretion. If their diabetes is mostly because of the insulin deficit, then exercise will not necessarily make a big difference. It might make a, sorry, weight loss won't make a difference. Exercise might have a bit better effect, but may weight loss not necessarily. It depends on the insulin deficit in that patient. So weight loss, are we talking about fat mass loss, what is muscle gain, what's really having a benefit? I always give this example of sumo wrestlers. Sumo wrestlers, when they're actually in the ring and physically extremely fit, they're quite insulin sensitive and they don't have diabetes. Sumo wrestlers get into trouble when they retire. So, never retire a sumo wrestler. <laughs> okay, so uh, it's really talking about complications, microvascular and macrovascular heart and vessels. So, people with type 2 diabetes, I think there may be a lecture about this, I'm not completely sure, uh, where you, if you look at complications of the, in type 2 diabetes, not only do they have the problem with glucose, but they can have problems with blood pressure. They can have cholesterol, lipid problems. So there are some other issues associated with uric acid inflammation. So there are a lot of factors in people with type 2 diabetes which increases the risk for macrovascular heart disease and circulation problems. So there are lots of other factors that contribute to it. In terms of microvascular, it is mostly the glucose levels. Uh, And is there a genetic component? There probably is. Because you do find that like talking about the identical twin study, if one twin has microvascular complications from their diabetes, the other twin is likely to develop it in about the same time period they developed, they had diabetes for. But I would also point out, I, I want you to leave with an optimistic note, which is controlling your diabetes well and controlling other risk factors like blood pressure, lipids, etc., can lead to long, healthy life, and you do not have to perish too soon. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.